Well, how you doing, church? Doing all right? Good, good, good. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Judah. I get to do a few things here, but one of my favorite things is to hang out with the young adults. Young adults, where are we at? I say that to say, if you are between the ages of 18 and 25 and we have not connected and you are not roped into our family, we have been missing you and we would love to connect with you. Um, I'll be in the lobby at the Connect Center right after this service, just for about five or 10 minutes after this service. And if you're between the ages of 18 and 25, I'd love to meet with you, uh, schedule a coffee or Jamba Juice and let's get you roped into the family. That is also to say to the rest of you who are not 18 to 25, uh, if we happen to be talking and I see an 18 to 25 year old, I'm ending our conversation to go and find them. It's not that I don't love you, I just love them more, amen? <laughs> Glory to God. Recently, um, I learned a new word. I'm a words guy. I play like games and apps that like teach me new words. And recently, I learned the word logomesia. Logomesia. Anyone wanna take a gander at the definition? Yeah, so logomesia is a word that describes word aversion. And word aversion is what you may feel when I say the word phlegm. Mm -hmm. Some of y'all, ooh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's word aversion. Word aversion is what some of you may feel when I say the word mucus or ointment or, and this is the doozy, somebody's gonna leave the church after this, he took it too far. Moist. <laughs> Just one more time for good measure. Moist. There's way too much power from the spool pit. So word aversion has to do with a couple of different things. Um, sometimes word aversion has to do with how a word sounds, right? The way it sounds, the way the um, consonants cluster or the diphthongs, it can make us uncomfortable. But for a lot of us, word aversion has to do with these kind of core memories and connotations and images and experiences that we associate with the word. So if I say the word peach cobbler, Many of you, I heard somebody already say delicious. Many of you would be transported back to a time, maybe at Thanksgiving, sitting around your kitchen table and your favorite aunt pulls out that hot peach cobbler that she only makes one time a year. And you're, you're immediately brought into a space of warm, fuzzy memories thinking about that experience. When I think about peach cobbler, I get nauseous. My grandmother is the sweetest woman in the world and she used to make this peach cobbler and my grandmother was the type of person that you really wanted to make her happy because she was just so sweet. And so she used to make this peach cobbler and I hated it. And she would come and she'd give me a big old, I mean a big old slice and she'd put it down in front of me. She'd say, baby, you like it? And I would look that lady in her eyes and lie my face off and I would literally be like on the edge of throwing up trying to eat this peach cobbler. That's what I think about when I hear the words peach cobbler. Everyone has a word or two that they experience word aversion with. But for years, I have had an aversion to a word that considering my profession as a full-time pastor, it might surprise you. I've had an aversion to a word that really on paper should inspire joy and like fervor and excitement, but when I hear it, I just wanna crawl under a rock. What's the word, Judah? So glad you asked. Evangelism. Evangelism. A word that simply means to share the story of Jesus, a word that encapsulates what I do at least 40 hours a week, right? 
And yet when I hear it, I'm just like, And I think one of the reasons that I've had such an aversion to the word evangelism is because I associate it with some pretty terrible images. I associate it with images like this one. I associate it with images like this one. See, I've seen evangelism done exceptionally poorly. And because of that, when I gave my life back to Jesus, I made a commitment that I was never going to be that Christian. Y'all know who that Christian is, right? Bullhorn, sign on the corner, embarrassing you. You just like walk by and like, can you just say you're Mormon? Just don't say you're, (laughs) don't embarrass us, right? And because I I made a commitment that I was never going to be that Christian, and then I stepped into the pastorate and I found out that I actually have a natural gifting and inclination for discipleship, I, I pulled away from evangelism. In fact, I think I pulled too far away. And so I'm in a season, like literally a right now season, where God is calling me back to my core purpose as a believer to evangelism where he's calling me back to boldly saying, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done, and I want you to know him because to know him is to be saved, and to know him and be saved is the best thing ever. He's calling me back to making sure that people who are not already believers, who are not already in the church, are hearing that message. And so I've been unpacking this question, what does healthy evangelism look like? right? Like, what does it mean to share Jesus in a way that doesn't make me nauseous? What does, what does it look like to share Jesus in a way that doesn't harm people, right? That doesn't push them away from church, but invites them in. What does evangelism look like that's inclusive, that's kind, that's thoughtful, that's authentic, that's ego-free, that's effective? What does evangelism look like that doesn't freak us out, And I'm really grateful that God gave us a manual for how to live as Jesus followers. We call it the Bible. And it helps answer my question. Listen, the way to do evangelism well, and it's your fill in the blank, is to be sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Be sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know if you have journeyed with Jesus for a while, you're probably sitting there thinking, I know this already. I saw you resist the urge to shout, duh, when I said it. But I know in my own life, in my own ministry, I need to be reminded of that because I lose track of it sometimes. I got to be reminded to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and to his guidance. And that's, that's where evangelism has to start, with the Holy Spirit. Evangelism doesn't start with, with the clever programming and, 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 and events. It doesn't start with the song set that we, that we make for the worship service. It doesn't start with invitation cards or, or even who's preaching in this pulpit. It, it doesn't start even with your passion and your zeal for the Lord. Healthy evangelism starts with the Holy Spirit, with your relationship. Somebody say, my relationship with the Holy Spirit and your willingness to be sensitive to his guidance and therefore to be desensitized or less sensitive to self, to self's desires, to self's wants, to self's opinions, to self's comfort zones, because you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both you and God. It is wholly incompatible. The, the serving God comes at the expense of serving you.
So today in part 15 of our year-long series through the book of Acts called The Empowered Church, we're going to be unpacking a familiar story in the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in at verse 26, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. While you turn there, uh, let me catch you up if you haven't been with us throughout the whole series. The book of Acts is really the story of the launching and developing of the very first Christian church. And in the life of this young, fledgling church, things are getting intense. And things are getting intense because the church is growing and expanding, and growth and expansion gets intense. And the result of this growth and expansion is that the church starts experiencing persecution, the likes of which the modern American Christian has never experienced. And last week, Pastor Lance walked us through some of what happened. He walked us through the stoning of one of the church's central leaders, Stephen. Stephen preaches the gospel, and the community rises up and murders him. And this launches a wave of persecution against the Christian church at the hands of Saul, who would later go on to become Paul. That's just to say it almost doesn't matter where you come from or what you do with Jesus. You can be transformed from a the greatest Christian hunter in the world to the greatest evangelist that ever lived. But the point is, for this new church, things are intense. To give you an idea of how intense they got, Acts chapter 8 and 3 says, but Saul was ravaging the church. I want you to think about that language for a second. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Things are getting intense. And the catalyst for this is Stephen's preaching. Stephen's preaching results in his own death and now in the persecution of the whole church in Jerusalem. Before this, just the apostles and the teachers in the church, maybe they would get beaten and thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. But now every man, woman, and child who professes Jesus is in trouble. And so the result of this persecution is that this church now has to scatter. Now they have to disband. They realize that it was not wise or safe for them to stay in Jerusalem. But they also realize that this is an opportunity to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And I love their framework because what they realized is that their crisis was an opportunity for God. What I want you to know is that your crisis, when everything is all falling apart and all hell is breaking loose and you're not sure how it's gonna work out, your crisis is an opportunity for God, for God to throw his weight around and show out in your life. And so this church scatters and one of the believers that is scattered is a man named Philip. We met Philip last week, and we learned that he was a man who had been tasked with taking care of the Hellenist widows. So in this church in Jerusalem, there were two groups of people. There were the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hebrews were people who really were committed to the Jewish way of life, the Jewish lifestyle, the Jewish culture. The Hellenists were also Jewish people, but they were Jewish people who had adopted a Greek lifestyle, Greek language. They read the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. And so the Hebrews looked down upon the Hellenists because they saw them as not being loyal to their culture. And in order to rectify this situation, Philip is tasked with making sure that he's taking good care of the Hellenist widows. And what you're going to see is that this helps prepare Philip for what God is going to do with him in the next section of the text that we're going to read. And I just want to point out to you that like your, your now is preparing you for your next. 
that everything that you're experiencing in your now is the things that are going to need to be in your tool bag for whatever God wants to do with you later. So take advantage of your now season, even with all the, the, the pain and the struggle and the heartache, take advantage of it because it's going to be useful later. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. So Philip ends up fleeing from Jerusalem. He ends up in Samaria. Samaria is an unlikely place for powerful ministry to occur because the Samaritans and the Jews had conflict with each other. They didn't get along. They, this is kind of like the original culture war. Before they were Democrats and Republicans, they were Jews and Samaritans. And they were basically cousins, all the same people, kind of like Democrats and Republicans. I'm, I'm gonna leave it alone. I'm gonna leave it alone. And, and they, they, would, they would beef. And so when he ends up in Samaria, he is unlikely to find a warm welcome. And yet, he understands that wherever he as a believer finds himself to be, Jesus needs to be proclaimed. So he gets to Samaria, he proclaims Jesus, and Jesus transforms the city. Miracles are happening, signs are happening, wonders are happening, revival is happening in the city of Samaria. The Bible says that because of Philip's ministry, the city experienced great joy. I hope they say that about Bridgeway one day, that because of Bridgeway's ministry, the city experienced great joy. And this is kind of where I want to pick up in the text that we're looking at today. On this backdrop, Philip has fleed from Jerusalem. He has come to Samaria. There's revival happening in Samaria. I want to pick it up right there in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert place. What I want you to understand is that this was probably a difficult set of instructions for Philip to follow. Get up, get on the highway, start walking. Where? Just walk, right? And this is difficult because, Lord, things are going really well in Samaria right now. We are having revival. People are getting saved. I mean, we're seeing it take off in Samaria. Certainly, if I'm going to leave here, now is not the time, not when we're peaking, not when things are happening. And Lord, I am the instrument that you have placed in Samaria to spearhead this revival. Why would you send me? Send somebody else, right? And then if you're going to send me, what is in Gaza? right? What sort of foolishness is it to leave a place of prospering ministry to go to a desolate place? This is like if God said, listen, I know you like your good job in New York City, but I'm actually relocating you to Winnemucca, you know, to Barstow. Like, why? And I just, I'm, I'm grateful that this is a story about Philip and not Judah because Philip was sensitive enough to the guidance of the Holy Spirit to be obedient. I find that I am often too sensitive to the guidance of what makes sense to me, of what is logical, of what is based on the limited information that I have. But this is the thing, healthy evangelism doesn't start with what makes sense. It starts with the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit said, go, I just just imagine that before the words had left the Holy Spirit's mouth, Philip was packing. I got to go. God told me to go, I got to get my stuff. Watch this. Reese, come here. Come on. Don't fall. I want you to pay attention to how he came. He had no idea I was going to tell him to come up here. He was not prepared for this. The Holy Spirit told you. Amen. 
I want you to notice that when I asked him to come, he didn't ask any questions. He didn't say why. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew me. And he trusts me. And he trusts that I'm not going to put him in a compromised position, although 5,000 people staring at you is a little bit. But that's all right, right? And I just think if Reese can trust me, somebody who is fallible, somebody who is sin-tainted, somebody who makes mistakes, somebody who can fail, if when I say Reese come, he's willing to just come, how much more should we trust the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit says come, the Holy Spirit who doesn't fail, the Holy Spirit who doesn't make mistakes, the Holy Spirit who doesn't drop the ball, the Holy Spirit who has all power and all information, how much more should we trust the Holy Spirit when he says come? Thanks, Reese. Yeah, when I look at this story, I see that Philip really trusted and knew the Lord. And, and, and that's really what it's, what it's about. If we're going to be believers that are really in tune with the Holy Spirit like this, we have to know him. We have to have a relationship with him. And if you look at every example of really unhealthy evangelism, it can always be traced back to people not knowing who the Holy Spirit is. Because listen, if you knew who the Holy Spirit was, if you knew who Christ was, if you knew who God was, you would know that this, that that's not his heart that that's not his way, that that's not his method, that that's not his language, right? Let's pick it up in verse 27. And so Philip rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So now we're introduced to a new character. And like so many other really important characters in the Bible, we're not introduced to this man by his name. We're introduced to him by the loudest external factors of his identity. He, we're, we're introduced to him based on the things that people would immediately see about him and judge him by, because that's what people do, right? I know I'm guilty of it. We see people, we make some determinations about them. Often we reduce people to just those physical things that we can see or what we assume about them, and it often gets us into trouble. But we meet this character, and the very first thing we learn about him is that he is Ethiopian. The Ethiopians were Nubians. They lived in southern Egypt and in, the, um, in parts of Sudan. And actually, modern-day Ethiopia is a lot smaller than the, the kingdom that's being described in this text, but what we learn is that this man is Ethiopian. That means he was black. And this is significant because what it means is that he was obviously not ethnically Jewish, right? Like you couldn't confuse him and mistake him for Jew. You wouldn't pass him in the synagogue and be like, are you a Jew? A J -J? No, it was very obvious this man was not Jewish, he was different. And the author wants you to know that he's different, that he is perceived as different. He's black, he's from the heart of Africa, he looks different, he speaks different, he moves different, he smells different. He, he comes from a thriving, flourishing kingdom that has a different value set. He's visiting in Israel where women were often oppressed, but he comes from a kingdom where a woman is head of state. His politics are different. His worldview is different. His, his upbringing is different. This man is, is different. 
And not only is he black, but he is a eunuch. Now things get a little fuzzy here because eunuch could have two different meanings. There is the traditional and obvious meaning of eunuch, meaning emasculated, describing the fact that often male servants that had frequent interaction with female royalty would be castrated, often as boys, in an effort to reduce the amount of risk of romantic or sexual activity happening between the male servant and the female royal person, right? And then what happened was over time, eunuchs were seen as so trustworthy that they got all the treasury jobs. And so over time, the word eunuch became a synonym for anybody who just managed money. So sometimes you would use the word eunuch to describe somebody who had the job, whether or not they had experienced castration or not. Now, I don't know, we don't know for sure whether the author of this text is saying that he was a physical eunuch or that he just had the job. I tend to think that he was a physical unit because the author says that he was a eunuch and then he says that he was the treasurer. It'd be redundant if he was just using eunuch to talk about being a treasurer. Uh, either way, he was different. He was culturally different. He was potentially biologically different. Now I'm gonna stop talking about castration, you're welcome. <laughs> this man is also socially different. He has a prominent position in the court of one of the most powerful kingdoms in the ancient Near East world. He has not lived a traditional life. He has taken no wife. He has sired no children. He has not worked a, a blue-collar, normal job amongst everyday men and women. And clearly, he is interested in the God of Israel, who is not the God of his tradition. This is why he has come to Jerusalem because he wants to worship the God of Israel. The issue is, as a black man and as a non-Jewish person and as a eunuch having a physical blemish, one of a sexual nature at that, all of this meant that full membership into the Jewish congregation of Israel was impossible for him. It was not allowed. You can come and visit the temple, but you're going to stand outside. You cannot come in because in order to come into the temple, you, you had to be fully Jewish or at least a Jewish convert, and you had to be without blemish. You had to be ceremonially clean, and this man is neither. This man is other. And what you'll find is that for some religious people, other is a disqualifier. Other invalidates. Other makes you dangerous. Other means you cannot be here, you are not welcome here, and you are not safe here. And so when Philip sees this man, he sees everything that he himself is not. He is almost Philip's complete opposite. And if Philip had even an inkling of an idea that, okay, maybe God is taking me through Gaza to, to evangelize some other people, he certainly did not think that this Ethiopian was going to be who was going to get evangelized. You can imagine for Philip that the differences might have been intimidating because this Ethiopian is a servant of the queen of Ethiopia, the, the, the Kandake. We translate it to Candace. It wasn't her name. It was a dynastic title, similar to like Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh isn't dude's name. It's, it's his title, right? And so what that means is that, that this man is serving under the sovereign of a nation, and not just sovereign in title. The Nubians believed that the king was too holy to engage in matters of the state. So the queen ran the country. This Ethiopian is a highly successful man. You know, sometimes when we think about missionary work, 
We envision taking our Western God to the poor brown people of whatever country in the East. This man does not fit that stereotype. He is wealthy and he is powerful, and I'm just glad that Philip did not reduce missionary work to only being for emaciated, impoverished foreign children the way some of us do today, because if he had, he would have missed what God was doing. Had he not moved when God told him to move, he might not have been exactly in the place for that eunuch to pass by at just the right time. Listen, delayed obedience is expedited disobedience. Delayed obedience is expedited disobedience. Whatever God has told you to do, do it. Do it today. Be sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that you don't miss what God is doing. So we meet this Ethiopian. He is successful. He is wealthy. He is privileged. But he recognizes that all of the privilege, all of the success, all of the wealth in the world is not an ample response to the fundamental question of why are we here and what are we supposed to be doing? And so this eunuch is searching and he's searching hard. One of the reasons that we know he is so committed to searching is the text says that he has this scroll from Isaiah. This is at a time when to have a scroll that you owned was very expensive. He paid good money for this scroll from Isaiah. It tells you what he cares about. You wanna know what people care about? Pay attention to what they spend money on, right? So he is searching. And one thing you should know is that any person you meet is searching. I don't care what their background is, where they come from, what they've done, who they did it with. Everybody is searching. And guess what? As Christ followers, I believe that we have the answer. So we have to be sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And Philip is. Pick it up in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. I just think about the boldness that this takes, like to run up to this man's chariot that probably had a couple of guards with it, right? A man so different, so powerful, a foreign dignitary. This was somebody Philip didn't know at all, right? Like this isn't like, hey, I got a cousin coming from Ethiopia. When, when he gets here, will you meet him and say hi? To him? No, no, no. There was like no connection, right? There are real stakes involved. This is like if I'm like, hey, when you get out into the parking lot, I just want you to go to somebody random's window and knock on it and ask them what they're listening to, right? Like if somebody did that to you, you start reaching for the pepper spray, right? Like that's, that's great. I had this happen uh, a couple of months ago. I was um, going to the gym and I pulled into the parking lot and there was a lady sitting in the car next to me and she had a baby in her back seat and she was just crying. I mean, just bawling, bawling, crying, going for it. And I was like, okay, I should pray for her. And then it was like, how do I initiate this? Like if I honk, that's probably going to give her a heart attack. I could get up and like knock on the window, but that's going to probably feel this big old guy knocking on my window, scared she got her baby in the car. I'm like, how do I do it? So eventually I just, I did the wise thing. I rolled down my window. And I was just like, hey, you, <laughs> let me pray for you. It worked out eventually. The point is I just recognize the, the anxiety that Philip must have felt, right? But he did it because this is what God instructed him to do. 
And he did it because he recognized that this was a moment that God had given him an unlocked door and a prepared heart. God had clearly arranged for this meeting between Philip and the Ethiopian. And it's an incredible example of how God unlocks doors for evangelism for us. God directed Philip to this person and to this place because he had prepared for him to do something. Listen, God is not gonna ask you to walk through a door that he has not already unlocked for you, right? Our greatest job as believers, this is all evangelism really is. Pray for unlocked doors, look for doors to be unlocked. That's it. That is your formula for evangelism. Pray for unlocked doors and look for opportunities, right? We pray for revival all the time. And I worry sometimes that we walk right past revival because it looks like a wealthy Ethiopian eunuch, because it looks different and it smells different and it's different than we expected and not what we anticipated or, or what we pictured because it seems risky or scary or because it exists outside of our comfort zone. But listen, nothing is transformed in the context of comfort. Nothing. Every analogy you can think of supports this. The, the caterpillar is not comfortable in the cocoon. The seed doesn't enjoy being split open so a flower can bloom. Nothing is transformed in the context of comfort. If you're comfortable, you might be stagnant. Transformation only comes through the context of stretch. And Philip was an incredible evangelist because he understood how to stretch with the Holy Spirit even when it made him uncomfortable. He was not led by his own whims and his own feelings. He was spirit-led. He knew that his own feelings were not inherently trustworthy. His God was. Your feelings are not inherently trustworthy. That doesn't mean that they're useless Right? God has gifted them to you to, to inform and to shape, but they are not inherently trustworthy. Your God is. Now, I want you to notice the way Philip approaches this evangelistic opportunity. What is the first thing that Philip says to the Ethiopian eunuch? He says, do you understand what you're reading? Right? So the very first thing he does is ask a question. And it's a good question. It was inoffensive, and yet it came with this subtle and gracious offer to explain the passage if the Ethiopian wanted an explanation. I want you to notice that Philip begins evangelism by trying to figure out where the Ethiopian is. Where are you in this? What's, what's going on with you? What's, what's happening with you? He doesn't make any assumptions. He inquires. He gets curious. He is searching for where there could possibly be barriers to the Ethiopian receiving the gospel. Listen, this is a great way to approach evangelism. When you approach it, ask questions to try to figure out where the person you're engaging with is. Where are you? Have you, have you, have you ever been to church? Do you know Jesus? Did you grow up in church? What was your family like? What's going on with you? How are you today? Did you work today? Are you tired? Are you hungry? Have you eaten? Do, right? Find out, discern where the person is. I was in um, Switzerland uh, a couple months ago, and I was uh, hiking one of the Swiss Alps, and there were these two girls, and I, I met them, and we kind of connected, and so we're just like climbing and talking and climbing and talking. This is like hours and hours. We get to the top, 
And one of the girls says to me and the other girl, she says, hey, y'all, smile, because there was a huge cross at the top of one of these um, Alps. So she said, smile, you know, and we're standing in front of the cross, and so, you know, I'm, you know, and the other girl goes, oh, I don't, I don't do crosses. And then she begins to share very strong opinions about the church and church people and Christians and pastors. And I mean, just, I mean, strong opinions. And we're just going down the mountain and I'm just listening. Mm hmm. Okay. Oh, you know. A few hours later, we get back into the city. We're on a train. And the girl goes, You know, Judah, I don't think you ever told us what you do for a living. <laughs> Said, No, I didn't. And so I tell her, I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. And I just like watched the blood just drain from her face. It was very entertaining. I enjoyed it very much. And she said, why didn't you tell me that you were a pastor? I said, I generally don't lead with that because, you know, I don't want people to put on the kind of like pretend hat. You know how y'all do. Y'all stop cussing and stuff. You do when you find out you do. You know how they do. I said, I want to know who you actually are and what's really going on and where you're at. And by this time, she had already invited me to Germany. She was like, you should come and visit me in Germany and all this stuff. I said, well, you can't renege on the invitation now. I'll see you next summer. The point is, I got to find out where she was. And that gives me a better chance of evangelizing effectively, right? He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch responds, he says, how can I unless someone guides me and watch this? And he invited, somebody underline invited, Philip to come and sit where? With him. Not above him, not detached from him, but with him, where he was. Philip didn't say, well, if you, if you come to my church, I'll like explain the passage to you when we get there. Right? Philip enters into the eunuch space. He enters into the eunuch's chariot. He enters where the eunuch feels safe and comfortable. Listen, evangelism is the art form of the gentleman, not the soldier. Evangelism is the art form of the gentleman because you cannot harass someone into salvation. You cannot oppress someone into salvation. You cannot coerce someone into salvation. You can coerce someone into religion. Every cult leader in the world knows that. But as healthy believers, what we're really looking for is opportunity and invitation. And sometimes that invitation is not going to look as explicit as the eunuch's was. The eunuch just said, hey, get in the chariot, right? Sometimes it's just going to look like somebody having a bad day and you happen to be there. Sometimes it's going to look like Proximity, you work with somebody, you go to school with somebody, you live with somebody. Those, those invitations sometimes take different shapes, but that's what we're looking for, opportunity and invitation. And one of the ancient art forms and skills that we have lost, not just as a church, but I, I really think as a country, it's why our politics are everywhere, is the art form of persuasion. Evangelism is not about forcing them or tricking them. It's about persuading them. And this needs to exist as a skill even outside of the context of evangelism. This is a skill that needs to exist in your home and in your marriage and at work and, and, and at school. Listen, don't fight them. Persuade them. Don't insult them. Don't throw them away. 
Persuade them. Don't crawl back into your echo chamber where it's easy because everybody else already agrees with you. No, do the hard work and persuade them. Appeal to your credibility. To the, to, your credibility is in your testimony and in your relationship with them. That's why it matters how you treat people. Appeal to their emotions, right? To the reality that they, like you know, that something is wrong with this world, that this world needs something else. Appeal to that. Appeal to, to their logic, to the historical data of the faith, to the fact that there are eyewitness accounts. Most atheists don't even deny that a man named Jesus walked this earth anymore. They just deny whether he was God. Appeal to that and persuade them. That's what we got to do. That's what we got to be about. Pick it up in verse 32. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens his mouth. And in his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. So the Ethiopian is reading this really kind of complex prophecy found in Isaiah 53, and it was more complex to understand because he was reading the Greek translation, which is harder to understand than the Hebrew translation. In general, though, the passage that he's reading, it depicts the basic pattern of suffering, of humiliation, and then exaltation of Christ, right? And so the eunuch is reading this, and he's struggling to understand. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And when we read this today, we're like, he's talking about Jesus. Duh, this is Jesus, right? But the Jews of that time had a, a different understanding. There were some who thought that this passage that talked about a suffering servant was talking about Israel because Israel had suffered a lot, exiles, wars, lots of, lots of conflict in their land. And then there were other Jews who thought that the suffering servant was Isaiah, that he was talking about himself. His life hadn't been easy. He thought maybe he's talking about himself. And then there were some that thought he was talking about the Messiah, but this was a hard pill to swallow because a suffering servant is not exactly the warrior king that they were hoping that Jesus was going to be, right? And so this eunuch is trying to figure it out, but what I love is that the eunuch was humble enough to ask the question. Listen, questions are actually really good for the faith. They're good for us. Hard questions, complex questions, questions that we have to wrestle with and wrestle through. That's healthy for us. We got to stop being afraid of other people's questions and even our own questions. And listen, if somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, say that. I'm not sure. I haven't arrived at an answer on that yet. I'm not, let me, I'm going to go talk to some of my friends. I, I, maybe I'll come back to you. I'm going to go read this book and maybe I'll come back. I'm not sure. Maybe we can figure it out together. Stop making up stuff. If you don't know the answer, say that. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Here's what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say, then Philip opened his mouth and shamed this Ethiopian for all his sins and his issues and his choices and his brokenness, and he told him he was on a slow fall to hell. That's what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say, then Philip opened his mouth and told the Ethiopian all the things he had to change and do for God and that if he didn't stop this and start that, the eunuch was not welcomed in the family of God. That is not what the text says. I'm just telling you what's on the paper. The text says, then Philip opened his mouth. 
And beginning with this scripture, he started where the Ethiopian was. This is what you're reading right now. This is where we're starting. This is what you're interested in right now. This is where we're starting. This is your issue with the church. This is where we're starting. This is your holdup. This is where we're starting. Starting with this scripture, he told him the good news. Not about the church and its programs. Not about ethics and morals and principles. He told him the good news about Jesus. He told him there is somebody who loves you. His name is Jesus. He is God. He loves you enough to die for you so that all of your brokenness and your issues and your imperfections and everything that's wrong with this world could be redeemed so that you could be in a relationship with him that starts right now and continues on forever. He said, there's a man named Jesus whose love is so profound. It will change everything about you, in you, and through you. And that is good news. Christianity actually shouldn't be a hard sell, right? Like, like the idea that, hey, you're imperfect, there's somebody who solved that problem, and all that, you, all that they want from you is to be in relationship with you. That, that's not a hard sell, right? The, 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 the Muslims, I think, just finished celebrating Ramadan. That means they ain't eating all day. That's a hard sell. We have an easy sell if we do it well. And what we see is that the gospel of Jesus, spirit-led evangelism, that it works. The Ethiopian hears this good news and he himself is ready to respond. He's not forced to. He's not intimidated into responding. He is ready to respond. And I want to be clear that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not a credit to Philip's salesmanship. Verse 36. And they were going along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And the verb that we translate there, it indicates a knocking down of barriers. In this particular case, there's the double barrier of both physical and racial prejudice being removed. We are seeing a eunuch, a Gentile, a black man get baptized and received into the full membership of Jesus Christ. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the river, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. We'll talk about teleportation another time. <laughs> and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And so just as suddenly as the spirit of God had moved Philip into this evangelistic opportunity, he moved him out and on to what was next. And whether Philip knew it or not, baptizing an Ethiopian eunuch was a radical step for a Jew to take, especially, especially in this time. Even a Hellenist Jew like Philip, it was radical because the Holy Spirit is radical. And because Philip was sensitive enough to that radical Holy Spirit, it allowed Philip to participate in the fulfilling of God's dream for a worldwide global gospel because now Africa has been reached with the gospel in and through the person of the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the gospel that had not yet reached Europe. This was the gospel that had not yet reached the Americas. 
but it has now infiltrated the heart of Africa. To put this into scope for you size-wise, within the continent of Africa can fit the entire United States and Spain and France and Germany and Italy, the entirety of Eastern Europe, China, India, Japan, and the UK. It is a big deal when you think about the number of souls we're talking about, the number of people that we're talking about. And here's what might surprise you. This actually has directly impacted you and your experience of church because it is out of Africa that church fathers like Augustine come. Augustine is the person who shaped the Western church doctrine that we still abide by today. He came out of Africa. Out of Africa comes Tertullian, who advocated for the use of the, the charismatic and prophetic gifts in the church. So those of you who are prophetic and charismatic, you get to express your spirituality because folks like Tertullian fought for you. Out of Africa comes Cyprian, who laid out ecumenical policy. Ecumenical just means the way churches relate to, toward one another. He shaped church protocol and church leadership structures that we use today. Out of Africa comes Athanasius, who helped the church understand the Trinity. Y'all ever sang the doxology before? Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's Trinitarian theology. That's stuff that Athanasius was working on. Out of Africa comes Anthony the Great, not to be confused with St. Anthony for my scholars, that's a different Anthony, but Anthony the Great, who is widely credited as the father of Christian monasticism. So those are the monastic practices, stillness, silence, meditation. Those of you who practice your faith in those ways, that came out of Africa. And because Philip was sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we exist in the church in this format today. By participating in what the Spirit was doing, Philip helped fulfill a prophecy that had been made in Psalm 68:31, which says, Ethiopia, Cush, will quickly stretch out her hands to God. And so what became of the Ethiopian eunuch? We don't know. We don't know. Tradition says that he becomes a missionary in Ethiopia and... Um, spreads the gospel. We, we're not sure. That's tradition, and, and sometimes the tradition we have to look at critically. We can't just take it as, as fact. But what we do know is that the treasurer for one of Africa's most powerful dynasties, who had the ear of the sovereign and the cabinet, would not have kept his testimony to himself. And what we do know is that some of the oldest churches that still exist in the world today are Ethiopian Orthodox churches. And what we do know is that this single conversion teaches us what can happen if we are sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to do evangelism well. And so maybe our question for the Holy Spirit today is, who is my Ethiopian eunuch? What is my chariot moment? And for some of us, it's not that we're afraid to talk to people, it's that we have a hesitancy to engage in a particular scenario. But the question is, what chariot, Holy Spirit, would you have me climb in? Where is my opportunity and invitation to share the good news of Jesus? And if you're here today or you're watching online and, and you don't know Jesus, I'm telling you, good news is that he loves you and he really wants you to know him and if you're feeling, feeling open to that, some of my friends from the prayer team will be down here right after the service. They would love to introduce you. 
But if you are already a believer, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's guidance. And I know that this idea of hearing from God is like a whole topic by itself. And you may be sitting here like, I have no idea how to hear from God. I don't even know how to discern his voice. We did a series here at Bridgeway called Discovering the Supernatural last year. And if you go on YouTube and search that, you can watch some of Pastor Lance's teachings on that to help you figure that part out. And uh, there's also a really good book called Hearing God by Dallas Willard that can be helpful in that area. But for today... All you really need to know when it comes to evangelism, pray for unlocked doors, look for unlocked doors. Pray for opportunities, look for opportunities. And when you find those opportunities, step into them, starting with asking questions. Where are the people that you're engaging with? Where are they in that moment, right? Meet them in that moment. Share the good news. The good news is your testimony, if nothing else. And then go about your business. Let the Spirit carry you on your way. I'll tell you this, an entire continent can be blessed by your willingness to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. We appreciate this story about how God the Holy Spirit uses everyday believers to change the world. And Jesus, I pray that you would help us to determine what that looks like in our own lives, in our everyday lives. We have so much influence in this room. We have so much potential for so much impact in this room. God, help us to capitalize on it in ways that bless people that open up space for people to know you, to know that they're loved. God, that's our purpose as a church. We're not here to be entertained or to titillate our emotions. We are here to be equipped and prepared to go back out. So Father, would you anoint Bridgeway to be a hub of evangelism, a hub of sharing good news? Would you allow some of the same anointing that was on Philip to fall on us, that we might also harvest a big, a big harvest, that we might too see revival, and that our city can be filled with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.